This is Truth Encounter, and as we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 11, Israel's founding father makes a bold declaration. Moses declares that there is a connection between moral obedience and prosperity, and he believes he can show it from the history of his people. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, as he uses an article from a magazine about the Mayan culture and a letter about our culture to make Moses' point far more than just a quaint observation about history. I picked up Time magazine and I noticed that they cover story with lost secrets of the Maya. And for us as Texans, it's just a little bit south of the border and there was this civilization that flourished from about A.D. 250 until about 900. And Time magazine goes through a litany of this culture. And it talks about how they built these massive pyramids. Some of our own young people have been down on mission trips and have been able to see some of the ruins of the Mayans and this culture. In fact, uh, during that time period, southern Central America was more populated than at any other phase of its history in the ancient world. It was just as populated as major sections, for example, the Babylonian Empire or the Egyptian Empire. And so we've got a gigantic population explosion down there in that area. And yet suddenly, about 900 AD, the culture was gone. And it disappeared, and time wrestled with why did this take place? Why did a people who could be so incredibly prosperous, they could be rising in more and more power, suddenly they could be cut off, and time comes up with some politically correct answers. It was an ecological problem. They burned down the rainforest, and they, they, they defoilated the entire area, and that was one of the contributing causes. Another politically correct cause was overpopulation and that they just couldn't support themselves anymore. They do mention the incredible increasing power of violence within the culture. Evidently, the old view of the Mayans was that they were a very calm, peaceful people, but the recent research has shown that in actuality they were very cruel, vicious, warrior-like people, and they started to have incredible competition. Why is it that a nation can be united they can be strong, whether it's the Mayans, whether it's Yugoslavia, these different peoples. And Time Magazine, interesting enough, doesn't say anything about right and wrong. It does describe that bloodletting, plunging yourself with a sharp instrument, allowing the blood to drip down, was done at every ritual feast that they partook of. In fact, Time mentions some hideous cults that, and hideous ritual practices that they went through that were just from the pit of hell. But it doesn't mention anything about that immoral or that pernicious kind of religion that can begin to infect a people. It doesn't say anything about that being one of the causes of this culture falling. Interesting enough, here we have a picture of a Canaanite altar. It's a large stone structure with a flat area that Megiddo and Mary and I have had the privilege of standing in exactly that same spot. And there is the Canaanite altar. And on that altar, they would bring their firstborn children and they would offer those babies as sacrifices to the gods of Canaan, to Baal and to Ashtart. And they would violently destroy their children. So whether it's the Mayans or whether, it's, whether or not it's the Canaanites, and then later on it becomes the Israelite people themselves because they became infiltrated with these same kinds of idolatrous, evil destruction of children. 
Why is it that cultures rise and why do they fall? That's the question that Moses is trying to wrestle with in Deuteronomy chapter 10 at the end of the chapter and continuing into chapter 11. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10 because Moses has thought really uh, this final conclusion of his introduction. He's a long-winded preacher. He's been on an introduction all the way from chapter 1 and he's going to conclude that introduction in chapter 11 then he's going to go on and give the laws by which his nation was founded. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 10... Verse 12, we have some very strategic words that Moses was trying to get across to his ancient Old Testament people, but I believe that God would want to bring those questions home to us today because it relates to not only why do nations rise and fall, but why do individual lives rise and fall. Now, as, I, as we're going through the thought pattern of this study, I have this closing introduction to Moses' message. I want you to think, not just in terms of nations, not just in terms of the United States of America or the Russian Empire or countries down in South America, but I also want you to think about your own individual lives. Because there is rapidly developing a tremendous polarization of two ways to look at life in our culture. One way to look at life is to rush up here and buy your lottery ticket and if you happen to win, then you're, the fates are with you. In other words, when you throw the dice, when you gamble, when you go for it, you happen to win. And there's one group of people in the world that are successful and have blessing because they're lucky. Listen to your talk at work. Listen to the talk about luck, about the fates, about luck and bad luck. More and more our culture is moving into the idea that life is just like the luck of the draw. Now some of you say that, man, I can't even find the prize at the bottom of a cereal box. And so you don't really do that well with that way of life. But I want you to think of that approach, gambling, the lottery, trying to have good luck, trying to win the prize. I want you to think about that as being a very powerful way of looking at life. It believes that blessing just comes by chance. It believes that blessing doesn't have anything to do with the way that you live. And I want you to contrast that with the powerful foundational message of the book of Deuteronomy. Because the book of Deuteronomy is going to wrestle with the reality that underneath the ups and downs of the nations, underneath the ups and downs of individual life, there is an almighty creator God who has standards of right and standards of wrong. Now the book of Job is going to wrestle with the question that's raised by that fundamental assumption that there's a righteous, holy, ethical God. The book of Job wrestles with what happens when it doesn't look like God is being fair. But in order for that to even be a question, there has to be this underlying assumption, there is an almighty God that I look to and expect things to be just and right and fair. And that's the principle that's undergirding Moses' proclamation to his people as he tries to found this nation. Now in verse 12 he says this, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? What does he require of you? What's the bottom line with this creator God that we're to worship? And then he says this. It's simple, very clear, very concise. I want you to fear the Lord your God. Remember I talked to you about how this is the fear. It's like the fear of awesome power, like standing on the edge of Niagara Falls. Remember when I taught you about that? 
And what Moses is reminding his people is that God has the kind of power that you need to be afraid to disobey him because to disobey him is to cast yourself into the very jaws of destruction. It's to throw yourself over the edge into the jaws of Niagara Falls and it's going to crush you. And you need to be afraid enough of those kinds of consequences that you turn away from the wrong and you choose the right. So you need to reverence, you need to fear the Lord. It says this, you need to walk in all of his ways. This business of being with the Lord is an everyday thing. The Old Testament loves to talk about life being like a walk, taking a walk. And you always take this walk with God. You are to love him. You are to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And you are to observe the Lord's commandments and decrees. Now that's the heartbeat of Moses' message. You are to love the Lord your God. The key to blessing, I can lay out the, the, the essence of Moses' message to us today. Every one of us, if you want to be blessed, if you want to find happiness, if you want to go straight towards the goal that God has for you, the fundamental requirement is, thou shalt love the Lord your God. Now notice how Moses hammers this thought home. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commandments always. I want you to see how the command to love ushers in the command to obey. If you love God, you will keep his commandments. The Son of God picked up on that same thought when he said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Look over a little bit further in the passage and look at verse 13. So if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today, and then he reminds us again, what is the heartbeat command? To love the Lord your God, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Look at verse 22. If you carefully observe all these commands I am giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways and to hold fast to him. To cling to him. It's a word that's used way back there in Genesis that a man and a woman in their marriage relationship are to cling to each other. Same word. If you love him, if you keep his commandments, if you cling to him, then he closes this introduction with verse 24 and a section that talks about, see, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. I believe if Moses were meeting with us in our session now, he would stand before you and he would say to every one of you, children, young people, adults, I'm going to set before you two ways. I'm going to set before you a way of blessing, a way of happiness, a way that will go straight towards the goal that God has for you. But I also want you to be aware that there is another way. It's the way of cursing. It's the way of destruction. It's the way of death. And Moses, at the foundation of his people, laid out these two ways. And what he does in this chapter, in this final introduction, and before he gets into their laws, he reminds them of some past things in their history. He reminds them of the way of blessing. He reminds them of the way of cursing. Now, I'm going to remind you of some of the blessing that Israel experienced, and then I'm also going to remind you of some of the cursing that those who rejected this way experience as well. We're going to go back into Egypt. Moses constantly likes to remind these ancient Old Testament people about their past in Egypt because that was the big moment of their redemption. For you as New Testament believers, you need to go back 
to your history of redemption, and that's the moment when you receive Christ as your Savior and the deliverance of the cross and the power of the resurrection took place. And I want you to, to always draw that relationship. When the Old Testament Israelite thought of the redemption from Egypt, you should think of a much bigger redemption from your slavery to sin and destruction. Now look how Moses does this. He commands them in chapter 10, verse 12, to love the Lord your God. In verse 14, he says, To the Lord our God belongs the heavens above, even the highest heaven, the earth, and everything in it. So the first thing he reminds these Israelites of is that your God owns all things. Your God is not just a private, exclusive little God. He's not like Baal, who would often be called the God of this city and of that city. And so if you moved from one city to the next, you had to change gods. Moses reminded the Israelites that their God was the God of the universe. When they looked at the stars, it was their God's handiwork. When they looked at the Mediterranean Ocean thundering in with gigantic waves, they would remember the Lord God of Israel. When they saw the rain come, we're going to learn in just a few minutes, when the early rains came that brought productivity to their fields, when the latter rains came that caused the wheat and the barley to mature, these Israelites remember that's the Lord our God. It's very important in our own walk with the Lord that we join with the Israelites and realize that all of creation is singing an antiphonal of praise to the Creator, to the Lord our God. One of the major things that we've been able to do together is to praise Him and to adore the Lord God of creation. But you need to move from the God who's the Lord of everything to the Lord that's in love with you to the Lord that chose you, to a Lord that would say like this, but as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the children of God. For the Old Testament Israelite, the choice of God was not to cause them to become a member of the church, to become a member of the body of Christ, to become a member of the believers and the Messiah of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the choice was that God chose their father Abraham to become the founder of the line that would generate the Messiah. But there was that exclusive, unique choice where the Lord chose the Israelite. And they were to never forget that they were a special people. Look what he says here in the, the next verse, verse 15. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers, and he loved them and he chose them, their descendants above all the nations as it is today. As we look at the Bible and we think in terms of nations, when we think of terms of what God is doing in the world of nations, the program of God revolves around Israel and their relationship with all the other nations. The Bible shows that God is going to discipline Israel. He's going to work with Israel. The end of the book of Deuteronomy describes the whole history of this nation, one captivity after another. But it described at the end of time that God's going to call these people back and they're going to be regathered into their land and then God will send his anointed one. And finally, Israel will respond to him. One of the prayers that should be on all of our lips as New Testament believers is a prayer for the redemption of Israel. It's the prayer that the Israelite will respond to their Messiah, the son of David, Jesus of Nazareth. 
Right now, those are words that can bring cursing and bitterness and some of the most intense hostility you can imagine. But don't let that hostility, don't let the convolutions of history cause you to lose sight of the handiwork and the handwriting of God in history. It's all about Israel and their relationship to the nations. Because God chose them when it comes to national programs. And God has not chosen them because they're better. He has not chosen them because he, they earned that right. Moses reminds them again and again that they were a stubborn people. They were a hard, stiff-necked people. And yet the Lord freely chose them. And from a national standpoint, they are the pupil of his eye. They're tender in his sight. And there's not going to be peace on earth and goodwill towards men. The nations are not going to genuinely unite in peace and harmony until they unite with Israel worshiping their Messiah and all the nations gather together to worship the Messiah with him. Do you believe that? I trust you do. Because those are heartbeat words of the Bible. If there is anti-Semitism in your heart, confess it, please. It's one of the most serious sins that you can, that you can commit against the Lord God of heaven. Be very, very careful of that kind of a hatred that's like a seething cauldron from the pit of hell that causes you not to love the earthly national people of God. And Moses reminded them right back at their founding, you were chosen not because you were good, but because God in his love reached down and touched Father Abraham so that he could have many sons. And by the grace of God, we're included in God's spiritual people. We are the church, and when I remind you about Israel being the national people of God, don't ever forget that it's not a put-down on you to become a member of the bride of Christ. You're not a second-rate citizen in the heavenly kingdom. You are a first-rate bride of Christ, body of Christ, the church, the gathered people of the risen Savior. So you enter into this gracious choice as well. Now, notice what Moses tells these people they need to do in light of the fact that they've been chosen. He says in verse 16, Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be a stiff-necked people any longer. The Old Testament is not prudish. The Old Testament is not afraid to lay out life the way it is. These were an agricultural people. And he uses a very powerful image. He says that it's very powerful for men in the audience. He reminds them of circumcision. On the eighth day in the Jewish culture, the male Israelite boy would be circumcised so that he would be more sensitive, so that he would be more clean, so that he would be protected from disease. And it was very important to them because it became a sign of the covenant. An Israelite boy could not be immoral. He could not join sexually with a Canaanite without the sign of the covenant being a very flag-waving, very strong communication to him. You are a covenant kid. That's why during the Maccabean revolt, when the athletes would run naked, and when some of the Israelite boys wanted to join the Hellenic culture and they tried to go through a ghastly reversal of their circumcision because surgical techniques in the ancient world were not that good, it precipitated tremendous, tremendous depth of commitment 
In fact, it generated the rise of the Maccabean revolt, which for a brief period of time was able to throw off the Hellenic Greek um, infiltration to their culture. What I'm trying to get you to feel is we're very pious about our church experience. In fact, some people say, Dave, you kind of offend me when you teach the Bible. You talk about stuff that I've never heard about before in church in my life. That's what's wrong with the church. Because preachers are afraid to tell you what the Bible really says. This is a powerful image. It says your heart, your personality needs to be sensitive. It needs to be full of feeling and tenderness towards God. It needs to be vulnerable to God. It needs to be clean. In fact, Paul, the great apostle, is going to pick up on this imagery in the book of Romans and he's going to tell every one of us is the children of God. Circumcision doesn't mean anything in Romans chapter 2, he says, if it's just an external religious ritual. Circumcision doesn't mean anything unless it's a symbol of your heart. And he says that a Jew is not one that's a Jew outwardly, but it's the one that's really become sensitized and tender and clean in their soul, in their heart, deep in their personality. And Moses' words thunder down to us through time with a very powerful image. And he says to every one of you, are you callous today? Are you insensitive? Or is your soul just as tender as it can be as you hear the word of God spoken? When you go to disobey the command of God, or if I go to disobey the command of God, is it like being pricked in a very sensitive part of my body that I can't ignore? And man, I respond because, because I'm really sensitized to wanting to be morally pure, wanting to be right. Circumcise your hearts. Don't be stiff-necked. What a powerful metaphor for the need to have a heart that's gentle and easy to entreat. As I grow older in the Lord and as I come before the study of God's word, more and more I find out there's a tremendous danger that I can be stiff-necked, that my pride can cause me to feel like, well, this chapter doesn't have any relevance. What does this chapter have to do with living today? And what I find, my brothers and sisters, it's not until I get down on my knees it's not until my heart, it becomes soft, and I'm willing to listen, and I'm willing to let the Word of God penetrate deep into my soul, and then all of a sudden it blossoms like a beautiful flower, and I'm able to really hear reality. I'm able to have God really talk to me, and I want to stress to you that it doesn't come by intellectual pride or thinking you're better than someone else. It comes by humble, childlike listening to your Father. And the Lord says to me, Dave, circumcise your heart. And he says to you, circumcise your heart. Now what happens when our hearts become circumcised? We start to care. We don't just care for the living God in heaven on this vertical relationship, but we've learned all the way through the book of Deuteronomy, we start to care, especially for those who nobody else cares for. Notice what he says. 
He says, circumcise your hearts. And in verse 17, he says, for the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. I want you to notice how Moses jumped from the great cosmic universal God, the Lord of all astronomical bodies, then he jumps down right into a courtroom. And he says there needs to be fairness in your courts. There needs to be no bribes in the way that you do business dealings. If you put out bids for a job, there can't be any hanky-panky over those bids. It has to be totally fair if you as one of the children of God are involved in that. What I want every one of you to see as business people and as legal people, as people that have to live in a secular world, as God's children, we need to move from the worship of the great creator God, but we need to move it right into our business. And across this world, we should be known as the people of God who obey the moral commands of God.